You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. We're back, baby. Just when you thought you could get rid of us, we're back. <laughs> Sorry, we took two weeks off because, well, we were originally going to take one, but then I got sick, so then we didn't record last week, but we're back now. Better we're than back. ever, some may say. Some may say it is, we're recording extra early on a Friday morning, so we're as as better as we can be. Nothing right? like meeting up with a good friend at 7.20 a.m. on a Friday to talk about various trivia topics that you found in the past week's crossword. And that's <laughs> on what we're Zoom, no here. less. Uh, uh, yeah, yes. no, we've, we've been gone, but we're back. Um, and that's, and that's just the long and short of it, I guess. And that's our podcast, Two Girls, One Crossword. And oh, I'm Grace yeah. Topinka. <laughs> and I'm Chelsea Rowan. Um, this is your favorite weekly podword crosscast. Um, yeah, listen to the inflection on weekly there for your hints about how frequently this podcast does in fact come out. Um, you would think that like working from home and like all of that, uh, it'd be easier for us to stay on a more regular schedule, but I definitely think it was much easier to stay on a regular schedule when we worked from the office, but I, not that I want to change going back to the office, of course, but no, no, not for the podcast. Not for no the podcast. Guys. Certainly not for the podcast. Sorry. <laughs> We're happy to be back. Um, and I wonder if we have the same topic. We very well could. I think you might. You could do a topic like this. I'll just say. You this could is do a this U- specific. My topic is a U topic for sure. My topic we'll is see. a U topic, but I was interested in it topic. So, mm. so maybe we don't have not. the same. We switched a little switcheroo. Okay, I'm curious. Well, before we get into all of that, I'm going to talk about our poll of Palooza from this week, which was about my topic two weeks ago about Candyland. I asked, what was your favorite board game as a little kid? And so I only put like little kid board games. I didn't put like Clue or Monopoly because I don't think that's like, I think a toddler right. can really play that. Right. So, and I understand someone commented was like, this, these games didn't exist when I was a little kid, but um, <laughs> sorry, Candyland. Shoots and Ladders, Sorry, slash Trouble. I feel like it's the same game, but maybe not. And then Let's wait, Go wait, Fishing. Sorry is, sorry is like Parcheesi and Trouble's different. Hmm. Trouble's the one where you have to press the thing in the middle of the board. Oh, I thought that one was Sorry. Sorry is like Parcheesi, where you have to get your pieces into the end circle. Oh. Well, shows well. what I know. Um, <laughs> and then I'd, I should have done Trouble instead of Let's Go Fishing. But some people voted for Let's Go Fishing. I had that one where you're, like, fishing on the thing, you know. There's fish and you oh. have, like, a magnetic fishing pole. I literally thought you just wrote Let's Go Fishing for, like, Go Fish. I was like, I've never called it that, but whatever. <laughs> no, that's the name of the... Oh, I said board game, not well, card that's game. I, was I already did card game. doubly confused because I was like, I thought that's a card game but whatever maybe she couldn't think of another one not thinking that let's go fishing was in fact a game i did you ever play apples to apples not apples to apples <laughs> i was like yes but that's not a kid's game no no no, not that one it's the um it's like a board game and there's mm-hmm. a tree and there's like little plastic apples that sit in the tree and you have to like collect the apples into your bucket it's definitely a kid's game that does sound familiar I loved that game as a kid. I can. I thought it was called Apples to Apples, but now I'm remembering that Apples to Apples is like the the grade school version of Cards Against Humanity. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. Well, I was almost going to put Operation on here, but I was like, I feel like Operation's a bit older. 
but Oper- I mean, Operation, yeah. the stress of that game. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was not good at Operation ever. And so. it was supposedly, when I was researching Candyland, it came up as, like, this game is good for helping kids learn, like, um, fine motor skills and <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, All it did for me was, you know, try and make me perform under pressure. That buzz yeah. was horrible. I know. But- it was so bad. And, like, fine motor skills. How fine? Because... <laughs> Like, some of those things were hard, like the wishbone or whatever. Ridiculous. The V-shaped, and you had to get, like, forget about it. Forget about it. And, like, the the, ply- the tweezers they give you are bigger than mm-hmm. all the spaces. So it's, like, exactly. not even... Yeah, it's, like, how, how am I expected to do this, then? Because the cut is the same exact size as the wishbone, mm-hmm. but I have to get the pliers out, too. So yeah. explain that. Explain that. But I did love the tiny little things that you would, like, put in. Like water in the knee, whatever like random oh. stuff that they, but like I loved mm-hmm. putting them into their little slot. Yes, yes, yes. Anyways, um, okay, back to the poll of Palooza. <laughs> so 58% answered Candyland, which that would not be surprise mine. me. That is a crowd favorite for kids. Um, in second place with 25% was Sorry. And then tie, or no, in third place with 9% was Let's Go Fishing. And then with 8% Shoots and Ladders. I liked Shoots and Ladders as a kid too. I think it was like easy. I don't know if I play. I didn't play as much Shoots and Ladders as I did Candyland. I'll say that. Yeah, same. Because the Shoots and Ladders board was like not that fun. The Candyland board, amazing. I also thought that the most fun part of the Shoots and Ladder board was the shoots, but that actually was taking you backwards. <laughs> right. I always no wanted to land on life. it so I could go whoo, you know. And it's like, well, now I'm losing. So. Thanks for that. It, it taught me a valuable escalators. lesson. If you decide to have fun, you're going to mm-hmm. not get ahead in life. You have to climb the hard, arduous ladder. To That's win. capitalism for you. That's capitalism. It was actually, you know how um, operations are teaching you about fine motor skills? <laughs> yeah. Shoots and ladders teaching you about financial struggles later in life. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, you have fun. Sets your bank account back. Yep. Sorry. Anyway. You work. <laughs> go up. Up and up and up, you'll climb that ladder. Um, so I think we should go into our hits and our shits. Sure. It's been a while since we recorded. I feel, I'm not trying, saying that I feel a little stilted, but I think I feel a little tired. Mm-hmm. It is early in the, in the morning and I haven't had my cup of joe yet. Oh, but you have it in front of you, ready to go? Yes, it's just extra, extra hot right now. So I'm like, mm. I don't want to sip it and go and like splutter it all over myself because it's too warm. So I'm just touching it with my hands and being like, are you warm? Are you too warm still? You know, um, I can't drink hot drinks that have a cap on it like that, like hot chocolate. Because I need to see when it's going to hit me. Otherwise, the anxiety mm. of waiting for it to hit me, yeah. it's like, takes out the fun. No, I, I hear I hear you because I got the cap on right now and I'm, I can tell it's still too hot. So I know that if it hit me by surprise, it would not be fun. Yeah. So. Maybe our hits and shits will perk you right up. Well, we'll, we'll have to find out. Uh, I'll start us off with a couple easy ones. Just okay. just a couple uh, one-offers. The Friday, April 14th New Yorker by Shandi Deepmore. Uh, I liked 12 across, not just online, to a texter. IRL? Yeah. Yes, IRL, which I thought was funny. Um, and then this is just 
I don't know. It's almost July, sort of. Uh, 39 down, Brook of the Blue Lagoon, and the answer is Shields, which, of course, yeah, you could think of Blue Lagoon when you think of Brook Shields, or you could think of A Castle for Christmas and celebrate Christmas in July, but it actually takes place in real Christmas time, but Christmas in July is coming up, so we should re- do a rewatch of A Castle for Christmas with Brook Shields. A masterpiece, truly. Truly. Her best movie, some may say. Yes. And um, what's his name from Princess Bride is in it as well? Carrie. Wesley. Uh, that's, is that who it is? That's who he is in Princess Bride, I think. Carrie something or other. I've only ever seen Princess Bride once, and that's, <gasps> um, yeah, I watched it as an adult. And I was wow. like, oh, he like made a reference. I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, that's from Princess Bride. I was like, oh, I've never seen it. He's like, you've never seen Princess Bride? I'm like. Unfortunately, my dad it's raised like, me on westerns, not that. <laughs> I know. Sometimes it's like if you if your family wasn't into like a certain movie as a kid, you totally miss that cultural reference. Yeah, gone. I have stuff like that. I can't think of it now, but Princess Bride was definitely in the circulation for my sister and I. Mm. We did watch it quite often. It's very good. Mm. Another big one for me was I'd never seen like Forrest Gump. Mm. I didn't see Forrest. Well, no, I did see it when I was younger, but then I forgot. I did but, yeah. not. And Matt again. That was like a or or um a Christmas story, the Christmas one where he lives. I've never the seen that one. I had never seen it. And Matt is like, these are all films that him, he and his family would watch. And I'm like, I've never seen that. And he's like, you're crazy. And so now we watch a Christmas story at Christmas every year. And he he didn't he's never seen um a white Christmas. And so now oh, we watch a, a white Christmas every Christmas as well. Uh, I think you would like That's, that one, actually. I know you've been trying to get. Actually, you've been trying to get me to watch it for years. Yeah, well, okay. I think I, I think at Christmas time we're gonna have to watch it because oh dear. How many screen movies have I seen? Like five or six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. That's fine. I'll watch it once. <laughs> I think once you see it, you're gonna be like, this needs to be remade. It needs to be like a remade Netflix Christmas movie. It's like a Castle for Christmas type vibe. Yeah, like Lindsay Lohan. Doing the twin thing, or like the sister. Can yes, you should do the twin thing again. Bring it back. Anyway, if anybody from Netflix is listening, uh, I'd love to pitch an idea to you <laughs> if you could spare but five minutes of your time. Um. Anyway, that's all I have from that puzzle. Okay. Well, I did the Monday, April seventeenth, New Yorker by Natan Last. Nice. Um, sixteen across. Music round answer worth half a point in bar trivia, perhaps. It was song. You know, bar trivia when you have to do the artist and the song. Yes, yes. I'm usually okay at that one. Yeah, Depends. that's not too bad. And then there was two clues in here that had to do with blood type, which was like one of my topics oh, in the very beginning. Yeah. 30 to cross. Substance whose AB type is considered universal, and the answer is plasma. And then three down. Animal for which a blood group system is named racist. The racist monkey. Or racist. Oh. Um, and then 30 down, portmanteau in an anime TV debut of 1999, Digimon. Digimon. I was definitely more of a Pokemon girl. I didn't watch any of those. Mm. I watched um, a lot of Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh. No, I wasn't cool enough. I don't know if I was necessarily cool for having watched them. <laughs> sure, that's true. <laughs> uh, oh, I was going to say about the blood type. Have you seen the what the Red Cross is doing with Snoopy right now? Yes. I know. I'm about to go donate blood this weekend if I can find a place. You should. I can't I think it's, do it. I think it's over on the 23rd, though, and we have someone in town. So it's like, do you want to go donate blood? Take them with, with you. <laughs> it, what, it'll take you a minute or two. 
And yeah, and you get like goldfish and hello snacks. Um, I also from that puzzle, I liked um, fifty two across. So I felt like I learned something. A word from the Chinese for quote black dragon, and the answer was oolong. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, we've all had oolong tea. Well, maybe we haven't, but we all know oolong tea. It's just interesting to know that that's what that means. Black yeah. dragon. It's a good one. What else do I have here? Um, the Saturday, April 15th, New York Times by Cameron Austin Collins. 15 across. Sketchy boardwalk offering? Question mark. Oh, a caricature. Caricature. Yes. Very good. Um, have you ever had a caricature done? No, I'm not brave enough for that. I couldn't. Okay, so I thought it was brave enough. I thought it was brave enough. <laughs> I just know that I, I, I can't. Well, thankfully, I got it when I was, like, a child. Like, I was, like, 12 or 13. You know, I was young. Um, and I was certain that I was going to, like, love this. So I did the whole thing. I got it. I looked at it, and it was, like, it pointed out everything that I was self-conscious about. And I was, like, cool um never again and there's a tiktok account where a woman uh does caricatures in the streets of la i believe and her caricatures of these people are so i, I would spire i would spiral afterwards i don't yeah the people who sign up to do it it's like you're basically signing up for someone to point out all of your worst features and what if they point out something that you didn't even think was like i know bad That's... and then you're like great now i have that to worry about right no 100 percent. yeah 100 percent I have um, seen one where someone does it, but, like, she doesn't do bad pictures. She just has a very specific kind of cartoon style that she does. So she basically draws you, like, in her cartoon style, but it's, mm. like, a flattering image. I would you do know? something like that. She doesn't like do that. anything mean. I'm like, that's cute. I would do that. But, I would, like, too. I cannot do, like, the I don't need, like, stuff. me with a huge nose on a skateboard. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? Right. Like, my massive forehead. Um <laughs> Which is a holdover from that caricature and every other day of my life. Um, anyway, so also from the puzzle, 48 across. We've talked about this a lot. 48 across. Blank life. Nomadism popular on social media. Nomadism, I guess. Oh, van life? Van life. And Grace and I have talked about this before, but there's like such positivity like, sh- like shown on like tiny houses or van life. And it's like, let's talk about with houses and houselessness and like all this stuff or like people who live in trailers are like looked down upon but if you live in a tiny house you're not i know i always was like tiny houses like tiny houses have existed forever trailer parks have been around forever it's the same thing exactly but it's like somebody lives in their car like, god forbid but somebody's doing van life okay like you know yeah. well anyway. of course in like a lot of this van life with the sprinter vans that are like eighty thousand dollars plus like fifty thousand dollars in conversions it's like i don't know no, I yeah yeah I don't know. There's there's a there's a little bit of a, like a a, si- a bombastic side eye. Well, I think it's more so like if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But I think sometimes it's peddled as like I just want like a really simple life. Like I'm nomadic. I don't want to be like tied down any place. Right. And then it's like you're not acknowledging that to do this, you have to have like a hundred thousand dollars in cash, and you right. also probably <laughs> have a home base. A lot of these people like park at their parents house or mm-hmm. friends houses like you know it's it's right. like a very privileged thing to be able to do in a weird way not that i, I would ever want to live in a van but it it, it really is <clears throat> and but in also... some in some ways though actually because alex's friend lives in a van and it's not a very nice one and she bought it like 
you know, second hands. So I think it depends. Oh, a hundred percent. You do it. We but. can't. You can't pigeonhole everybody, but I do think that um, the image of van life on social media, this nomadism yeah. that the clue is talking about, this van life, it's very privileged. Like you have to. Not only do you have to have like the money to start, but like you have to have the money to sustain yourself because. There's so many different laws about like parking vans and cars and sleeping in cars and whatever. Like Mm -hmm. you need to be able to have the money to actually legally park and safely park yourself and like things that other people who might be forced to live in vehicles don't have access to. Like you Mm -hmm. said, a home base, things like that. Um, It's just there's more to it than no one is. And like if you're a young white person, it's less likely that someone's going to like see you sleeping in a van and like call the cops to be like, this person is like sleeping in their car on my street or hurting you. You yeah. know, so yeah, attention. It's we talked about this a lot. <laughs> do you guys live in a van? Let us know. <laughs> yeah, what do you think? How's how's that going? Um, also, from that, I liked thirty-five down ring. Or sorry, um, the answer is ringtone. I'll just reveal it because I almost did phone number question mark, and the answer is ringtone. So that was nice. fun. Um, did you ever do like vanity ringtones or whatever they're called? No, but I did have like. Kim Possible ringtone is my ringtone forever, like all through college. Like, doon, 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 doon. Amazing. I, f- I had to download it from something. Who even knows how we did that stuff back then? But that, isn't that the hilarious? I think about like if someone were to like, oh, put give Grace like a specialty ringtone. I'd be like, I don't even know how to yeah. do that. Whereas like, yeah, in high school or college, it's like that's all I was doing. It's like I was like coding my phone in my MySpace page. <laughs> exactly. Oh, uh, I also liked forty nine down. Who had us at hello, question mark? Wasn't it Harry or Sally? Or is that from a different... Very good guess. It's Adele. Same oh. concept where yeah. you were going, um, Adele. Also, the, the music video for Hello by Adele. It's amazing. Just going to throw it out there. That's all I have from that one. Well, I did the Tuesday, April 18th, New Yorker by Anna Schechtman. And I loved the opener, one across, more than a pair. And the answer was Threpple. <gasps> cute um 15 across place for wheeling and dealing question mark and the answer was car lot <laughs> very good uh 21 across i could this is case of the blank and then parentheses and you um on we <laughs> i'm like oh. that's how you pronounce that and i was like <laughs> it's gonna be case of the morbs but it wasn't it was case of the blahs ah uh. um 27 across it can be made in a microwave despite its name kettle corn uh i don't like kettle corn i'm not that big into popcorn any at all i know um 54 down internet startup question mark and the answer was http cute very good i did the wednesday april 19th new yorker by wina lou 15 across you're really bad at whispering in quotes and the answer was i heard that (laughs) i love that um yeah also, 23 across, this is just a throwback, again, to a, an older topic that I covered when I covered Versailles. Um, Out-of-touch statement popular, popularly attributed to Marie Antoinette, and the answer was, let them eat cake. Um, Marie Antoinette didn't actually say that historically, mm-hmm. but the phrase lives on, and I love it, let them eat cake. Um, and then also, 51 across, just throwing it to like some um, nostalgia from my childhood, Mr. Bean actor... Atkinson, and the answer was Rowan. And I watched so many Mr. Bean things as a kid because the last of his first name, Rowan. Mm-hmm. I was like obsessed with 
that connection between my last name and his first name. I thought it was wild that he had my last name as his first name. Um, did you watch like Mr. Bean things? I feel no. like it's so weird I to didn't. have watched that. <laughs> no, I think there were some people who like, I think I watched the one, that's the one where he's like, no, wait, maybe not. That's not the one where he's like, am I not turtly enough for the turtle club? No, I loved that movie. That was like, <laughs> oh, that's Master, Master of Disguise. Disguise. Okay, right. <laughs> um but no i never watched mr bean okay okay mr bean's but i think good. some people did that's the thing it's like if you watched it in your house or you didn't i missed that I so no you got anything else i from that puzzle i also liked 44 across place for digital pioneers since the 1970s and the answer was the oregon trail the good one and then 57 across you'll need to pull some strings to make it work and the answer was marionette yes what else you got um a couple from the April 20th, Thursday, New York Times by Elizabeth Gorski, 20 across, occasion for a canal inspection. And the answer was ear exam. I was thinking like a dentist exam, but good. Very good. And then 34 across, coaches for benched players, question mark. And the answer was piano teachers. Cute. Um, and then let's see. Oh, because are you done? I have one, one I more. have one more puzzle. Okay, because I want to talk about the... Thursday, New Yorker, or sorry, New York Times by Simeon Siegel. All right, do it. 53 across, subject of a fully exposed image. And the answer is nudist. <gasps> and then call back to a topic I did, <clears throat> seven down, Henry Ford's sole heir, Edsel. He was also the guy who invented, like, the biggest flop in car history called yes. the Edsel. That was what my topic was on. But the clue was crazy. I've never seen this before. So the revealer was 63 across. How this puzzle's grid must be rotated in order to read the answers to the starred clues when written in 17 across. So it was clockwise is the answer. So there were four clues that like ran down, but they made like once you filled it in with the across, it made no sense. It was like, this is not a word. Um, For example, 11 down, like a household with a stay at home parent, maybe. And it, the clue is we like it makes no sense. It's like W E O U Z H W Z O. But okay. if you turn it clockwise, the O stays an O. The Z turns into an N. Like if you turn a Z on its side, oh. the W turns into an E, and so it's one income. Oh, so there were four like that. That's where if you wild. turned it to the side, like um, zoom zoom, what the like Mazda catchphrase. Mm-hmm. So. Anyways, it was kind of cool. I feel like I hadn't yeah. seen that before. That's really interesting. Is that all you have from that one? That's all I have, Ed, just in general. Okay. I My last puzzle is from the Thursday, April 20th, USA Today by Emily Sharp and Kunal Nabar. 27 across. Shoes sometimes worn with the suit. And the answer was heels. You love Ooh, to see it. Ooh, nice. Uh, and then this is really interesting. Four down, blank lighting, pink, purple, and blue film aesthetic. And the answer was bisexual, bisexual lighting. That's what it's called? That's what it's called. I I looked it up. I was like, this is wild. So using like the bisexual flag colors, so like the the pink, blue, and purple, um, and using that as like a lighting effect in a scene to... Uh, is often, it doesn't have to be used for any, like, ulterior, like, meaning, but a lot of mm-hmm. queer directors use this lightingscape to suggest queerness of certain characters or just, you know, to reinforce, like, an identity. 
but mm-hmm. um, it's that kind of like blue, pink, purpley color, and it's called bisexual lighting, and it has a Wikipedia page and everything. And I was like, "Wow, I'm so glad I did this cool. puzzle and learned this." Um, and then, fifteen down, creature like Shrek, and the answer is ogre. Mm-hmm. Um, Grace and I always joke about how ogre is clued like negatively in puzzles like mm-hmm. monster or whatever, and we're always like, "We need where are the ogres PR team?" Like, Grace, yeah. I think we are for? the PR team. And I feel like Maybe. Eric heard us and <laughs> was like, we're not going to do any negative clues. Like misunderstood um, monster. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, that was a good puzzle, too. Um, and that's that's all I have. Excellent. Well, let's flip the coin, get into our topics. Let's flip the coin. I'm flipping the coin now. <gasps> it's Tails. For me, little oh me. Oh, my God. All right, moment of truth to see if we have the same same topic today. Okay. Okay, my topic comes from the Wednesday, April 19th New Yorker by Wynalu. Ten across. Beverage that might cause a brain freeze. The answer is icy. Not my topic. Wow, Grace is doing a food topic? I am. Crazy. To be fair, I do love icy, so... Okay, Icy's, America's favorite frozen summer drink. Maybe. It's mine. Okay. Who invented Icy's and how are they different from Slurpees? Are they different yeah. at all? Well, we'll find out. Okay. Um, I got most of my information from an article on tedium.com. Yes, that's tedium with a T <laughs> called Frozen Mistakes Were Made by David Buck. So the invention of Icy's kind of started with a mistake, more like a solution to a problem. So Omar Nedlick. He was an entrepreneur in Kansas. He grew up the son of poor farmers, but he loved to like tinker around with the farming equipment and machines. He was very into that kind of stuff. Um, When he got back from World War II, he returned home and he wanted to open up his own business. So he had an ice cream parlor and then he ran a couple hotels, but he ended up buying and running a Dairy Queen in Coffeyville, Hmm. Kansas. One story goes that in 1958, the soda fountain at the Dairy Queen broke down. It was a hot summer day and Omar couldn't let that slide because he had customers coming in wanting a cold drink. So he placed bottles of soda in his freezer and sold them from there. While sitting in the freezer, the soda started changing and the result was a delicious soda with a slushy, partially frozen consistency. Hmm. Other stories say that Omar never had a soda fountain at all and he always sold his soda cans partially frozen. Or some people said like... When there was a big rush of people and, you know, he sold out of sodas, cold sodas, he would put a bunch in the freezer to, like, uh, make Mm. them cold really quickly. But either way, his customers started loving these frozen sodas and they would start requesting them specifically, not just, like, as an alternative. Interesting. So Omar Omar was like, hmm, maybe, like, I'm onto something here. This could be, like, a national thing. People want this. So he set forth on a mission to build the first icy machine. Ooh. And the first prototype was a combination of an old ice cream machine and a car's AC unit. Amazing. So I told you he liked to tinker around with stuff. So luckily <laughs> yeah. he was able to make this. And it was basically a way to combine freezing water, carbon dioxide, and flavoring, which is what mm. makes it icy. Okay. In an article in the Coffeeville newspaper, Omar explained that the machine would take a pre-mix of mostly any flavor and then put it under a degree of pressure Quote, any liquid increases in density when pressurized. Release of the pressure causes it to freeze. Hmm. So, 
You know how science works. Whatever that means. Exactly. Um, (laughs) This machine served his drink at 28 degrees Fahrenheit per cup, and Omar marketed it as the coldest drink in town. Wow. With root beer being the first flavor, but then Coca-Cola was a second most popular one. He called them fizzes, but then Kellogg sent him a cease and desist because they had a product called fizzies, and they were like, fizzes sounds too much like fizzies. Fizzies were effervescent tablets that turned water into a flavored carbonated drink that existed back okay. in the day. Um, but Omar was like, okay, we won't use fizzes. So apparently he held a name that treat contest. And one customer, Ruth Taylor, she was a local artist in Coffeyville, Kansas. She came up with the name Icy with an extra E and Omar ran with it. Cute. Ruth also designed the logo. So the icicles over the word Icy is from her original design. Cute. And then she drew, originally it was like a baby bear cub sipping water, cold water. Um but as time passed, he eventually morphed into the cool, fun-loving adult bear that we know today. If you, yeah. He's kind of like a polar bear and he stands on two feet. Yeah. like he has sunglasses, but he's definitely <laughs> cool. But he started as just a baby. Okay. Um, Omar knew that he needed help taking this machine outside, outside of Coffeyville, so he enlisted the help of Dallas-based company, John E. Mitchell Company, to help build the machines. So they came out with the first one in 1960, but they didn't sell well at first because they were really expensive and they were really big, so no one was buying them. So then they made a smaller version of it and they patented it. And they in the patent, it includes the defrost cycle or what we may know as, sorry, this flavor is temporarily unavailable. Okay. You know, have you ever been to like a Slurpee machine or an Icy machine and mm-hmm. the light's on and you can't mm-hmm. do it? Why is that's the defrost cycle and why is it needed? Well, yeah. this is a quote from the patent. It has been found that even with the viscosity, temperature, and pressure controls heretofore refer- referred to, over a period of time, ice crystals in the liquid ingredients in the chamber began to begin to increase in size. Eventually, usually after several hours, their size becomes so great that they affect the operation of the machine or a poor quality drink is produced. At this point, it is necessary to place the machine in a defrost mode for several minutes to melt the ice crystals. Hmm. So that's why. Otherwise, it would get too icy. Okay. Okay. It's just like a reset cycle. Basically. It's not broken. It's just, it just needs a minute. Um, once this smaller machine hit the market, they couldn't keep up with sales. Like everyone was trying to get an icy machine. They were in um, convenience stores. They were in grocery stores. Wow. And then in 1965, 7-Eleven bought some machines and, like, per their contract, they called them Slurpees. Okay. Um, typically, at the time, selling two flavors, one being Coke and the other one either, like, a cherry, wild cherry, or blueberry. Okay. To this day, 7-Eleven Slurpees are just Icy's with a different name. Icy is, like, the parent company of Slurpee. Ah. Despite some fans swearing that 7-Eleven Slurpees are superior. Hmm. Um... By the terms of the agreement, Slurpees can only be sold at 7-Eleven stores, which is why you wouldn't see Slurpees at, like, a movie theater, but you might okay. see ICs there. Okay. Under that same agreement, whenever 7-Eleven, like, purchases another store, like, they purchase the Stripes convenience store. Mm. Stripes used to sell slush monkeys, but now that it's a um, 7-Eleven owns Stripes, they're now Slurpees. Ah. So any, like, 7-Eleven owns store, if there's an icy drink, it's a Slurpee. Okay. Um... The machines and the basic mechanics are the same, and most of the flavors are the same as well, although Slurpee sometimes creates its own flavors. I'll talk mm. about some of Slurpee's special okay. flavors later. Um, I also read that you'll only find Slurpees in 7-Elevens in North America. 
I read that mm. in a couple of places, but I couldn't. Um, but not every place, so I don't know. But this tracks because when I was in Thailand, they have Seven Elevens everywhere. That's like almost like a CVS, but even more so. I mean, they're all over, and that's like where everyone goes for you know snacks and whatever. They're sure. very busy, but they don't have Slurpees there. And I could would have killed for a Slurpee. It was like a hundred and five degrees. Ah, that's interesting. I was like, I could go for a nice Slurpee, but they don't have them there. They're not into Slurpees there. Yeah. What can you do? Um. But they do have them in North America, and in fact, Winnipeg, Canada, consumes the most Slurpees of any city in the world, which it's is so shocking. Random. I'm sh- you would think it'd be some place that's like hot year round. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, but also, icy headquarters are now in Canada. Okay. Um, okay, but fun fact: the Seven Eleven spoon straw, because you know if you get a Slurpee yeah. from Seven Eleven, you get the straw that has a little spoon at the end. That was invented in 1968 by um, Arthur Akanian, who went to MIT. I think it might have been while he was in school there. But anyways, the straw is in the MoMA design collection. Wow. It's groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. And what about the science behind Icy? So how mm. does it work? Well, the trick is to chill a liquid to below its freezing point without it becoming solid. The carbon dioxide, water, and syrup chill inside of a pressurized barrel. It churns to scrape any ice away from the sides of the barrel. The sugar in the mix prevents it from freezing into a solid mass. So, yeah, sugar does affect the way that water reacts to being frozen. Um, Scott Rankin, a food scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, says ices are like avalanches. If you're in an avalanche, it's sort of like you're swimming around in snow. As soon as the avalanche stops, it becomes very rigid, very cement-like. So that's why they have to, like, constantly keep moving. Oh, you know? okay. Um, okay, some fun facts. Yes. 7-Eleven has trademarked the term brain freeze. Oh, my God. Really? Which, yeah. I guess, like, they can use it in marketing materials. Obviously, it's, like, not it's not really attributed to 7-Eleven. Sure. It's a term that people use. But I thought it was interesting because this clue says beverage that might cause a brain freeze. And the answer was icy, <gasps> not slurpy. Ooh. Um, okay, Icy's influenced frozen margaritas. So Dallas restaurant owner, owner Mariano Martinez had a liking for both 7-Eleven Slurpees and margaritas, and he actually created his own frozen drink machine because at that point he couldn't, I don't know if he like couldn't afford to buy a machine or like he specifically wanted the Slurpee kind and you can't get like, you can't buy like a Slurpee machine. Mm. Um he created his own frozen drink machine, and he refined the design until he could pump out margaritas with the icy consistency of a Slurpee. I, so, yeah. okay, to be fair, to be honest, I've never liked ices. I've never liked Slurpees. It's just not like my thing. I know. Oh, my God. I have had in the past, but I just think they're too sweet and also too cold. And like, you know me, I can't drink things very quickly. And like, oh, right, right, right. Everything just is mush and like syrup water by the time I, like I get through it. I will... I have in my day crushed many a frozen margarita and I well, would I a frozen margarita I can handle but like a blue raspberry or strawberry slushy and then like a coca-cola if I'm gonna have a coca-cola I want it I want it raw you know what I mean no I I love a co- that's like I know I you always do. get the coca-cola but she's always like oh it's free like, it's 7-eleven day let's go get a free slushy <laughs> don't remind me I didn't go last year but now it's, it's coming, coming up. up again so um okay there have been 150 flavors over the years of icy flavors, including wow. buttered popcorn. Oh. 
Um, new flavors are developed in Plano, Texas at the same plant that makes Dr. Pepper and Snapple. Wow. We were just talking about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's why I knew. Um, okay. David Thomas, the senior VP of research and development for Dr. Pepper Snapple, says that coming up with icy slash slurpy flavors is a precise science. Quote, the target flavor has to burst in your mouth and be more intense to meet the taste expectations of Slurpee customers. That presents an even greater challenge because carbonated soft drinks are some of the most unforgiving products when working with flavors. Add to that the frozen element and you have an even greater challenge. To replicate a carbonated beverage, the flavor concentrate has to be many times stronger for the frozen version. So maybe that's why I don't really like it too much. It feels really it's too strong for you. Yeah. Well, um, I read that. Back in the day, icy flavors and slurpy flavors were named like random stuff, like Scooby-Doo, Purple Flower, <laughs> like nothing with what the actual flavor was. But now they're always just named after like exactly what you can expect the flavor to be. Okay, that's interesting. Um, the most popular flavor is Coca-Cola. Of course. Classic. Wild Cherry is the second most popular. Um, Fanta, Mountain Dew, Orange Crush, Pepsi, and even Crystal Light all have signature icy flavors. Mm. Um, as far as signature flavors that 7-Eleven created, there's watermelon, banana, which is gross, I think. Well, yeah, I no, know. 100%. Yeah. Um, lemon lime and sour green apple. I could try lemon lime. Yeah, I don't know about the green apple. Yeah, no, no, no. The thing is, sometimes these are like, I th- the feeling I get with icy flavors is like, a Jolly Rancher as a drink, and that's just like yeah. too much for me. Do you know what I mean? Like in yes, small I portions, agree, but... I could. Yeah, you, you don't have to. In small portions, I could maybe have like a sip and enjoy it, but like too much. Well, that's why I like the Coke ones the best. I think because they, you know, I know the flavor. I'm comfortable. I could drink a lot of Coke. Maybe on Seven Eleven um, Day, I'll try a Coca Cola flavored one because I haven't had one in years, just to see yeah. how I'm still feeling. We'll make it happen. We'll make it happen. Um, okay. In Canada, there is a bubblegum flavor with real chewable bubblegum inside. Oh, my God. A, a parent's worst nightmare. <laughs> in Detroit, there's Werner's ginger ale. And okay. in Australia, there's a ginger beer flavor. Oh, interesting. Uh, swamp water Slurpee is the unofficial name for a Slurpee that consists of some of every flavor when no. you mix it all together. No. People are wild. Um. Weirdly, even though there have been 150 flavors invented, Icy only produces 30 flavors at any given time. Hmm. They even say that on their website. They're like, yeah, we only produce 30 flavors. They also say on their website, quote, we wish we could offer them all at every store, but the available flavors are determined by the retailer. Please let your store manager know which flavors you'd like to see them carry, and hopefully they will order your favorite flavor. Sometimes all it takes is a request from an Icy fan like you. (laughs) That's so funny. Um, okay, as for Omar, the inventor, he and his family received royalty checks for about 17 years until the patent expired, but they never got rich from it, which is shocking to me with how That's big Icy's yeah. and Slurpees are. Um, they continued to live in their modest Coffeeville home even after Icy's um, and then Slurpees became a nationwide sensation. But nevertheless, Omar's son Ron said that his father was, quote, immensely proud to see Icy's and Slurpees storm the country. So it's great to be proud, but. He should have gotten paid yeah, get, for his work. Get this man his check, honestly. He passed away. Sad. Um, but yeah, so there you wow. go. Wow. That's that's we're we're heading into warm weather, so I'm curious to see what people's fave um icy flavors are. I'm 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 
anticipating the poll. Um, yeah. <laughs> Could very well be. I don't know how much my topic uh, lends itself to a poll, but we'll see. Let's see. So my topic comes also from the Wednesday, April 19th, New Yorker by Wina Lou. Mm-hmm. You actually brought it up in our Hits and Shits, 44 Across, place for digital pioneers since the 1970s. I'm talking about... I was going to do that, but I yeah. didn't. I'm talking about the Oregon Trail, um, and I was sh- I was sure Grace would do this topic. If she did this puzzle, I was like, she's going to do this topic if she did this puzzle. Thankfully, there's a lot to talk about. So, um, I had ICs had. on my list first, so I started looking into that, and I was like, yeah, I can do this as my topic. Mm. I didn't even get to look at it, but I had it circled as, like, potential, like, look into this potential topic. Yes. I um, ICs is one of those topics that often shows up. It's a crossword ease, right? Because it has the double mm-hmm. E. It's really nice, and it has the I in it. Um, is really one of those things like Oreo that's been, you see it all the time. You're like, oh, maybe I could do that this week. Um, we got to do that one day, you know, icy mm-hmm. Oreo. There's a couple that show up that we kind of just, we know that they'll repeat, but, um, I'm glad that you finally did icy, but yes, we're going to talk about the Oregon trail. Did you play the Oregon trail as a kid? Yes, of course I did. Okay. I never did. Isn't that crazy? You never, we used to play it at school. Did your, your school didn't do that? We had a bunch of, like, edutainment games, which is basically what this topic is about, edutainment. Um, mm-hmm. The one that I played was, like, a lemonade stand, where you had, like, a lemonade mm-hmm. stand. It was, like, an 8-bit lemonade stand, and you had all these factors, like, weather, how many people, your ingredients, and, like, you had to, like, manage the lemonade stand and, like, ordering ingredients, making things, and accounting for what time of day it was most busy and what the weather was like. So similar to Oregon Trail like you kind of have to like you're basically a household manager or whatever mm-hmm. for the particular thing that you're playing whether it's the wagon the the wagon leader or the lemonade stand owner but um I played that a lot I never played Oregon Trail though hmm. but we're going to talk about that anyway so for those of you who might not know what the Oregon Trail is because you didn't play it in school uh whether because you're too young or too old. Uh, the Oregon Trail is a series of educational computer games. Uh, the original game was designed to teach eighth grade school children about the realities of 19th century pioneer life, uh, specifically on the Oregon Trail. Uh, the player assumes the role of a wagon leader guiding a part party of settlers from Independence, Missouri to Oregon's Willamette Valley via covered wagon in 1848. So that's like the, you know, what the game's all about. Uh, I got my information from a couple places, but the main source was a Mental Floss article from 2013 titled The Legend of the Oregon Trail by Jed Lipinski. It was a great article. Um, uh, but So where does the story begin? It's fall, 1971. Don Ra- Raich, I'm sorry, his last name is very difficult to pronounce for me, <laughs> Raich, uh, and his two roommates, Bill Heineman and Paul Dillenberger, are seniors at Carleton College. They're also student teachers teaching junior high students math and history in inner city uh, Minneapolis. Uh, And like when they weren't teaching or in class, they would spend time like giving each other tips and tricks on how to like improve lesson plans or to to have better engagement from their students. One night, Bill and Paul returned to their apartment and found their roommate Don sprawled on the living room floor drawing a map of Western America. Early in the day, Don had been stumped on how to get his eighth graders interested in his new history unit the Western expansion of mid-19th century America. He tried everything he could think of. He would, you know, try to put in weird, compelling facts into his lectures. He would show up in, like, 
full historical <laughs> garb. Like you tried everything, right? Imagine having this teacher. You're like, oh my god. Yeah. And then of course you think back. Like this guy's still in college. He's like a student at in college, and he's a student teaching at like a school. We've all had a student teacher. They seem older than they are. Yeah, I think when you're like in eighth grade, but like thinking this kid is in college and he's like yeah. trying to like make it cool it's like he's just like a 20 something year old kid trying to make this work anyway but nothing was working the kids weren't interested in i don't know the american expansion plan of the mid 19th century mm-hmm. um so but then don's roommate found him um and he was sketching maps on long sheets of butcher paper and he told them i'm making a board game about the oregon trail his initial idea was a game where students would become pioneer families traveling the treacherous 2,000-mile route from Independence to the Willamette Valley in Oregon. They would set out uh, in ox-driven wagons and purchase food, clothing, and ammunition. Along the way, they'd encounter a series of historically accurate calamities. He planned to add an element to like advance the players, whether that be dice or educational cards. But Bill and Paul stepped in and they said, what if we put this thing on a computer? Um, and so... Instead of, like, pure luck of the die, the simulation would take into account the weight of your load or what you paid for for your oxen, um, and survival could hinge on your skill of shooting a buffalo. So everybody loved this idea, right? But the problem was that Don needed the game to be completed in less than two weeks. Bill and Paul were like, we got you. Hmm. So historical context. We're in the 1970s, right? So computers were extremely rare. And in their place, a lot of tech-savvy schools had these things called teletypes, which were electromechanical typewriters that would connect through a phone line into a mainframe computer. And the computer that we're talking about here is the size of a room computer, you know, that we've, Grace and I have never experienced that. You know, we've, (laughs) we had all the desktop stuff. Um, So that's kind of like the historical context we're talking about. And Bill and Paul were like, let's put it on the teletype. So uh, how did this trio make the game work? For two weeks, the roommates holed up in a former janitor's closet at Bryant Junior High School where the school's teletype was stored, uh, and then they spent their evenings programming. Uh, they used Rodich's historical knowledge, um, and Heinemann and Dillenberger developed a series of algorithms punching hundreds of lines of code into the teletype. He, so Don Rodich debuted the Oregon Trail in his classroom on December 3rd, 1971. He rolled the teletype into the corner of the room. Students were all gathering around, uh, and then the machine turned out a roll of paper with a question. How much would you like to spend on clothing? So this is interesting. They don't have the computer screen that you might have played Oregon Trail on at this point. Yeah. It's just a thing. It's printing out a question, and the kids can type their answer back to the computer. That's cool. So then the kids type in a number, and then the machine delivers a new question along with an update on his or her condition. Uh, And, of course, you get to use your imagination a little bit. So in order to hunt, students had to type the word bang. If they typed the word quickly and accurately, the machine responded, good eaten tonight. If they faltered, the machine sniffed, a little slow on your Colt 45. Oh, my God. Cute, right? Yeah. So when we think of video games, especially games we had growing up or games we have now, the original Oregon Trail is probably not something you could ever imagine playing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But for these students, computers as they knew them were essentially glorified calculators, right? So this was a huge advancement for them. Um, Grace also, just to say, Grace also did a topic on um, uh, arcades. So like this is Mm -hmm. also a time when arcades are starting to become, or like digitized games are starting to become popular and arcades are starting Mm -hmm. to show up. So like this is the computer boom is happening right now. And like 
digital games and like all this stuff is starting to happen. But still, seeing like a game like this in a classroom is huge. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, so uh, yes, the game Oregon Trail really would have opened up a new world for these students. Um, after a few rounds, the kids who previously had no interest in history knew a little bit more about geography in the Western United States and the brutal realities faced on the trail. Uh, the game worked on a conceptual level as well. This is a quote from Raw Itch. Quote, the Oregon Trail was one of the first educational software applications that put you into the program. Despite the lack of graphics, students who played weren't students anymore. They were settlers crossing a wasteland. Their decisions were a question of life or death. End quote. Mm-hmm. One of the first games where you basically you're role playing, right? Yeah. The first iteration of the game fostered teamwork. Initially, when the machine asked questions, students would just shout out various responses. When this proved inefficient, they started putting decisions to a vote. And essentially, they invented, quote unquote, democracy out of necessity, right? Mm -hmm. So students uh, also realized that the quantity of food available hinged on how quickly they typed bang. And they began to take turns uh, and learned to delegate. The best typist got behind the gun. The budding accounting kept track of the expenses and so on and so forth. So the game was clearly a success, and so the three roommates loaded it onto the school's what they called time-sharing system, which is essentially a, like their cloud, I guess, um, yeah. which enabled other Minneapolis schools with teletypes to play as well. Then Dillinger and Heinemann shared the Oregon Trail with their own students who lined up outside of the janitor's closet after school to play the game. And it wasn't long before the kids found ways to exploit the program's bugs, because there were bugs, because it was just three guys typing a program into, like, a teletype, yeah. right? Um, so, for instance, spending a negative amount of money on supplies would increase your cash flow, for example. Uh, and so they were constantly updating the code as well to, like, yeah. fix these bugs. But at the end of the semester, the unit was over, and Raj had no more use for the game. So he deleted the game off the timeshare program, and as a souvenir, sort of, he printed out the giant roll of code and stored it in his apartment. And it was years later before he brought it out again. So, more historical context. At the time in the United States, the federal government was really nervous about competition with other countries, specifically the USSR. Uh, And so to keep America's kids ahead, the government handed out massive grants for innovative approaches to teaching. This is interesting. Why aren't we still doing this? Educators in Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul, were ideally positioned to receive these grants. Uh, Computer companies such as IBM, Univac, Controlled Data Corporation, and Honeywell all had offices in the area. Essentially, it was a Midwestern Silicon Valley. I had no idea about this. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so interesting to me to think that, like, Minneapolis was, like, a hub for edutainment yeah. uh, in the 70s. Right. Um, in 1973, there was a man named Dale LaFrance. He was a former math teacher. He was, a sire- he was hired as an assistant director of a new statewide body called the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, also MECC for short. Uh, and MECC was tasked with providing computers and computer training to schools and colleges throughout the state. Uh, LaFrance and... St- uh, basically hired Rawich uh, as an entry-level liaison for local community colleges. Uh, and he told Rawich that MECC was building a library of educational software to be used by Minnesota schools and that he was open to any ideas that Rawich might have. So Rawich was like, I've got just the thing. So over Thanksgiving weekend in 1974, Rawich exhumed the old code for the Oregon Trail. He reviewed the game again and he knew he could do better. So over the next year, he thickened the plot. He used new facts he found from diaries of the Oregon Trail survivors. For instance, he discovered 
how often settlers ran out of water. He uh, tallied the ways people died. He took note of how indigenous people, uh, contrary to popular belief at the time, were actually quite generous with survival tips, letting settlers know whether it was safe to cross the river, for example. He factored all of these details into a newer version of the game and spent a holiday weekend punching the, t- the code back into a teletype. Um, and uh, this time, he the, this teletype was connected to, what was it, 1,500 terminals across the state. So 1,500 schools had access to the Oregon Trail now. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Thousands of students started accessing the Oregon Trail every month. Um, yeah, and it became the most popular software program, aside from, like, email, which was starting to happen um, in mm-hmm. Minnesota. By the late 70s, Radio Shack, Commodore, and Atari were debuting sleek new personal computers. Um, Of all the brands, MECC chose to support the Apple II. In 1978, MECC delivered 500 Apple II computers to Minnesota public schools, marking one of the burgeoning computers giant's first big sales. So Apple sold their first major sale to the Minnesota MECC, which is really interesting to me. Oh my god. Um, conveniently for the Oregon Trail, Apple software came packaged on diskettes, allowing the game to be easily shared and uploaded onto new school computers. Uh, and so other state school systems, envious of Minnesota's technological progressiveness, began purchasing binders of software from MECC as well. And suddenly, the Oregon Trail was in nearly 5,000 school districts nationwide. Not computers, districts. So imagine how many students had access to the Oregon Trail. You included. Yeah. Although you were not born in the 70s, but still. No. Uh, then, uh, with Raj acting as consultant, MECC's young programmers, many of whom had played the Oregon Trail when they were kids, uh, redesigned the game with basic four-color graphics. Um, and that there was actually one of the programmers at this time um, tweaked all of the calamities, and he was in, uh, the person who um, added the announcement quote, you have died of dysentery. He added that in, <laughs> which is like a famous line. Yeah. I, who have never played, I still know that. You can get it on t-shirts and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, in the versions that kept, they kept updating it and kept re-releasing it. Um, there, in a bunch of different versions, they added different little elements. In one, MECC staffers were recruited to sing popular folk tunes uh, from the 1840s, like Vive la Campagne, la Campagne whatever, uh, whose melodies were recorded and translated into beeps and buzzes to provide a soundtrack for the journey. Um, later to aid in character renderings, MECC's up for anything employees dressed in period costumes while an in-house videographer filmed them in front of a green screen. So like they were doing all sorts of things. Um, let's see, let's see. So through the eighties and the early nineties, MECC, uh, dominated the so-called edutainment market. Its roster of games included word munchers, games with words and spell elevator. Uh, basically all of these games would teach you the kids something in a fun way right Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see these games became such a success because of their ability to give students immediate feedback oregon trail was one of those games that gave you immediate feedback um so uh instead of like waiting for a teach taking a test and like waiting for a teacher to like give you your test back a week later you could play this game and you're knowing immediately what your decisions are leading to Mm -hmm. uh let's see the Oregon Trail remained the company's best-selling game. Its sales were so strong that in 1991, the state of Minnesota sold the company to a venture capital fund for $5.25 million. Damn. Uh, and then, uh, when MECC went public three years later, the Oregon Trail represented a third of its $30 million plus annual revenue. 
It's crazy how popular it was. What about the people who first invented it? Were they like involved at this point or? They didn't make any money. Wow. I know. They like he he what's his name got a job. He was like an entry level position at the MECC. Mm-hmm. Uh the assistant director was like we're looking for like any kind of software that could be great. I don't think people really knew what was computers yeah. were so new, right? And so he's like, "Oh yeah, I've got this thing I wrote." And he just uploaded it to the state school like system so the kids could play this game. Well, guess what? The MECC went public and they were able to sell things and I don't know, yeah. make a ton of money. Um so, MEC's future seemed rosy. Edutainment had become a $500 million industry, uh, but there were profit-hungry corporations circling, trying to figure out how can I make money off of this. Um, eventually, publisher and distributor Soft Key International acquired MECC for $370 million in stock options. A month later, uh, Soft Key snapped up Learning Company, and in 1998, Broad... Uh, broader boon which was the original creator for uh carmen san diego uh but the results weren't pretty Softkey essentially gutted the research and development side of all of their games uh, and put all of their money into marketing instead um Softkey eventually renamed themselves to learning company uh they started axing popular games like reader rabbit and madeline for not returning oregon trail level profits they also cut dozens of jobs from mecc uh the minneapolis headquarters forcing it to shut down in 1999 uh, and later that year, toy manufacturer Mattel bought the learning company for more than $3.5 billion. But by t- 2000, Mattel posted a net loss of $430 million. It was on its, like, downside. Yeah. So edutainment was, like, burst in the 70s and, like, kind of, like, popped by the 2000s. I mean, mm-hmm. edutainment is still a thing, but, you know, this was, like, the first run, right? Nevertheless, the Oregon Trail has endured. There are an insane amount of versions of the game. There's an iPhone version, which was the first version of the iPhone game, was released in 2009. There are mashup games with the Oregon Trail, like Fallout Boy Trail, which the ba- the the band tours the country in an ox-toed van. There's also the Oregon Trail, which players dodge zombies in a post-apocalyptic landscape. Amazing. Um, John Paul C. Dyson, who's the director of International Center for the History of Electronic Games, says, quote, The Oregon Trail taught generations of students not only about the history of westward migrations, but also how to use computers. Any game that can su- survive so long in so many different variations has to be important, end quote. Um, and as of 2013, when the Mental Floss article was released, the game's three creators were still friends. Uh, Heinemann was, I know, right? Um, Heinemann was teaching after school and summer enrichment programs in math and chess. Dylan Berger had recently retired after nearly 40 years in Minneapolis public schools. And Rolich was living in Chicago, uh, working as a consultant to educational tech companies. And this is a quote from Rolich, who's, this was his original idea. The game has become part of our history for far longer than any of us could have expected. Being introduced as a co-inventor to the Oregon Trail has been a great icebreaker over the years. End quote. That's true. I mean, I would, like, be milking that. I know. Why would you not? Well, I want to try and play again because I feel like when I played as a little kid, I never made it to the end, Mm. I don't think. But I probably, like, didn't, you know, realize what I was supposed to do. So I feel like I want to look back as an adult and see if I can, like, actually play it with some strategy. The game exists. You could just, like, Google it and play it, like, right online. Yeah, we also had an like Oregon Trail 3D at our home computer. Like we bought this game, amazing. And it was, had like all these like I don't know. It supposedly had cooler graphics at mm. the time. 
Um, I loved these stupid education games. I was obsessed with them. I was such a little nerd. Like, I the only thing I wanted to do during the summer was play Jumpstart. I love the Jumpstart. What about I, the one where they're like in the Aztec? It was so ruins? good. That's it the was best so one. Good. Where they so go down good. the slide. Yeah, yeah, and then you have to like get the beetle to go up the. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I loved those games. Me and too. I had them like for every, you know, because you would buy them like jumpstart first grade, jumpstart second, second grade. grade. Yes. Oh, God. Do you remember the one at, like in the treehouse and you had to like, um, they'd be like, I would like one portion of baked beans. I would like one quarter portion of French fries. And they're like in the school cafeteria. <laughs> I do vaguely remember that. I had we had a lot of the jumpstart ones because myself and my the brother who is a little bit younger than me, not my youngest brother, we would have them for different age groups. Mm. So I not only would I play like jumpstart fourth grade, I'd also play jumpstart second grade or something. I'd yeah, lo- I and we also had the workbooks too because I was such a nerd. Whoa, she was into it. Well, I feel like for some reason I feel like we had three. We didn't have like all the grades. Mm. Um, I don't know why. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I love those. And then at school, we would play math munchers, word munchers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The good lemonade time. stand. I have not met anybody who's played the lemonade stand one. No, I'll see if I can I find it. it. It was so good. Well, and you know, like at the time, there were probably parents who were like, our kids are like playing too much computer games at school. It's rotting. You know, there's always something. Well, yeah, of course. There's <laughs> always something. People are ridiculous. I was in, um, I hope. I hope that this shows up, but you know, Gifted and Talented, that program. Uh-huh. I was in Gifted and Talented. I was in the Gifted the GNT computers uh unit, I guess. I don't know. I was uh-huh. in a couple of them and we played like all these edutainment games and did like type biz tests and stuff on there. Um it's interesting to think like how much time I did actually spend in a computer lab as a kid, even with parents being like, We our kids are spending too much time on the computer, you know. Well, I distinctly remember my elementary school got a computer lab and then we all took like a PowerPoint presentation class Mm -hmm. and then we did PowerPoint presentations and like people's parents came to like watch the presentation. Yes. But I spent so much time on mine. I did mine on Great White Sharks and I had like my opening slide was like Great White Shark and then I had a picture of a Great White Shark that like slowly slid in from the right and my sister helped me at home. We somehow got like the Jaws music to go with it. It was so loud. Yes. Because at that time, like, anytime you did a PowerPoint presentation, it was, like, every little bullet point had, like, an effect, had a sound. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I remember doing one of my first PowerPoint presentations, like, maybe, like, third or fourth grade or something. And my dad was really techie compared to, like, other people's parents, I think. Mm -hmm. And he helped me put all the sound effects on it. And I brought it to school. It played amazingly on my computer brought it here to school and they didn't have speakers connected to the computers oh no and i was like you can't hear anything i have all this music and stuff and well i'm trying to think how the hell my sister and i figured out how to get the sound bite <laughs> from jaws and get it onto powerpoint like i don't even know how we did that it's like how would i do how that we now? Knew how to, and like what <laughs> we download onto my dad's computer yeah. like what virus we downloaded trying to look oh for the God. sound bite it's hilarious but um yeah anyways that's computers for you that's computers for you well well i guess you have to play oregon trail and i have to try a coca-cola icy slash slurpee for the first time in a very long time yeah i will take you on july 
7th. No, July 11th. Yes. I appreciate the offer and I'll be available. I hope I'm available. Um, yeah. Well, if not, I mean, they're not that expensive. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like two bucks for like a small one. I know, I know. But there's something, something special about getting it for free. You know what I yeah, mean? Just walking sure. in and being like, I'm taking this. But not I'm every location. Keep in mind, listeners, not every location does the free Slurpees on 7-Eleven. I've been burned before and they only do it between like a certain time. Yeah. It's like from nine to six. It's like, yeah. why isn't it from 11 to 7 or 7 to 11? Exactly. It makes no it makes no sense. Get me on the phone with the marketing yeah. team. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll loop back. We promise we will loop back with more information on both of these things. We always say that we will, but we will. We mm-hmm. will. This um, time we really mean it. We really, really mean it. You have to trust us. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at The Good Eve Girls. Or Instagram at The Good Evening Girls. Or TikTok at The Good Eve Girls. Come on down, say hello. Uh, and in the meantime, keep curious, listeners, as always. Uh, and we'll see you same time next week, maybe. Maybe, maybe. I say conveniently. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. Goodbye, Bye. everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>